humble, compassionate, kind, faithful, hypocritical, pompous, prideful, narrow-minded. Could we be in danger of fading from a faithful follower to an accidental Pharisee? Good morning, Crossroads. How are we doing? So good to see you. I want to welcome our Lexington and Shelby campuses. So glad to have you with us. And those of you online, we're thrilled to have you as well. And uh, we look forward to all of you coming back at some point. Uh, by the way, the uh, Buckeyes are getting back into football. And so uh, we have a safe place. Wow, we have a safe place. Uh, Man, we, everybody's excited. Football season's in the house. Um, but we're excited to have you back as well. And as always, we're taking precautions. We've checked with the experts that we uh, get to talk to, and they agree that we're using every precaution necessary. And uh, as long as everybody feels safe, uh, we want to make sure that you're in a safe place. And obviously, we'll keep track as we progress. Hopefully, we don't hit purple, uh, which will change a lot of different things. But we're thrilled that you're with us this morning, whether online, at our campuses, or here at Park Avenue. We're thrilled to have you. If you would take your Bibles out with me and turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, you don't have a Bible, there is one in the seat back in front of you. If you turn with us to page 861, Luke chapter 5, page 861. As you turn there, a couple big things that happened this past week. We, uh, we had a team that went to Louisiana to serve in partnership with Samaritan's purse and they were able to serve after the hurricane that stormed through there. There were thousands and thousands of homes that were damaged. Uh, you can go to our missions uh, Facebook page and see all some of the pictures of the damage that uh, took place in some of those homes. And the team did a fantastic job of working uh, to help clean up, to help build some things, make sure things are, are steady. And they also served about 12 different families, 12 different families that we, they were able to serve. And not only did they serve them physically, but they also were able to talk with them spiritually and pray with them. And uh, there was one homeowner who came to know Jesus Christ as a result of our team being there. And so we praise God for that. And... Uh, of those 12 homes that our team focused on, uh, we had one that came to know Christ, and all the rest were spiritually encouraged, and there was a lot of work done this week. So thank you for the team that went uh, at last minute, last minute notice, went uh, to Louisiana and spent the week there serving. Also this past week, through our city center, uh, we received uh, 1,340 pound boxes of food that we were able to give away into our community to 13 different, 1,300 different households received 40-pound boxes of food here in Mansfield as well, as well as in Shelby. And uh, we praise the Lord for that. And opportunities to have gospel conversations with many, many different people, uh, many opportunities to pray with people as that food was delivered. And so uh, I just, my mind-blowing to think about 1,300 40-pound boxes uh, that we're able to go out, and so thank you to our city center team, uh, to our Shelby campus that also reached out into Shelby, and uh, what amazing difference that can make in our community to encourage people in the midst of this difficult season. I did want to mention to you, this coming Wednesday, we'll be having our first Wednesday, Wednesday service here at Park Avenue. This is a chance to get together to worship and to pray, and can I just say, is there ever a time where we need prayer 
the most. I mean, we need to spend time in prayer. You're going to be hearing about some opportunities to pray uh, coming up as we enter into the voting season. We're actually going to take a 24-hour time of reading through the New Testament and prayer together as a church. We're going to keep you up to date about that, leading right up into the votes. That way we're spiritually prepared about what is ahead. But this Wednesday, a time to gather together as a body and just worship Christ and spend some time in prayer together. Uh, By the way, if you come, you're not going to be asked to pray publicly or anything like that, but just to join us in the heart of prayer to hear some needs, to talk about specific things, and then to spend some time on our knees saying, God, we, we know that you are our greatest need in this moment, that you are what we're looking for. And so uh, we hope you'll join us this Wednesday for our first Wednesday service. It's going to be a fantastic time to celebrate the goodness of God as well as to dive into seeking after God together. Uh, Luke chapter 5, I don't, let me ask you this question as we begin. Have you ever ended up somewhere accidentally? Like you're heading in a certain direction or you're going down the road or you're heading to vacation and you end up in a place that you never expected to end up. You just kind of fell there. Just kind of landed there and you're like, how did I get there? I know I've been on many different mission trips around the world. There have been multiple moments in my life where I've been someplace and like that feeling just overwhelmed you where you're like, how did I get here? Like, it, it, it just like, it comes out of nowhere. It's like, how did I, how did I end up here? Now, I understand I took a flight and end up, you know, t- having a, a guide take me into this site. But I get there, and it's like, wow, I just can't believe I'm standing here. I can't believe I'm sitting here. How did I end up here? Um, I remember years ago, uh, my family and I were vacationing down in the Outer Banks in North Carolina. And we found out, it was around Memorial Weekend, and we found out that there was going to be fireworks in this community that was about 45, 40 to 45 minutes away. And so we decided to pack up the boys, and they were really little then. We decided to pack them up and head to watch the fireworks that were going to take place in this little town. And so we looked up the little town, and it seemed easy enough to get there. And all of a sudden, we're driving down this road, and it just seems like we're heading down the road to nowhere. You ever been on one of those roads where just like trees all around you, and this road, like there's no cars, there's no traffic, and you're just heading down the road, and you're like, where am I heading? Where is this taking me? I mean, this road is just like a haunted road, and we're leading ourselves to death here. And so we're driving down the road, and eventually we come to this point that seemed to be just kind of encaved in this mist of trees, almost like, like, almost like a cave coming out of nowhere. Um, it, it kind of reminded us of Narnia or something. And we drive in, and as we get to this gate, and we're like, this is kind of odd that we're entering a place that has a gate, like this community that we're trying to watch fireworks with our little kids. And what we didn't know is we had entered the premises, or at least the outer premises, of Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, which is the home of the Marines. And out of the blue, like this is like literally just happened, we, we drive in, no, we didn't obviously enter the gate, they wouldn't let us, but we drive in, and the next thing we know, there are these huge Marines, these guys that are just ripped and built, and they're standing there with their machine guns, and I'm like, what did we just do? And uh, of course, they come up to the window, and I point to Allison, and like, it's all her fault, like she was giving me the navigations, and, and uh, we, we had a laugh about that, and the boys thought it was really cool, right? We got to meet these military guys, and uh, it, was, it was really funny, they kind of laughed with us, but there were like 10 guys with machine guns waiting for us at the gate, having had cameras all the way down the road, knowing we were coming in. What are these people going to do, right? A minivan with four little boys coming in to do damage to the Marines. Right, you probably have that situation where you end up where you never expected to end up. 
Can I tell you, one of those places that we can end up accidentally is also in our spiritual journeys. See, for most of us, when we begin this journey with Christ, when we begin our faith as Christians, when we begin this journey in our Christian life, right, we begin with a lot of fervor, we begin, begin with a lot of excitement, we begin with a lot of ideas about what this life is going to look like, right? We all begin this journey with the greatest of intentions, We're at the top of our game in that moment, right? We're ready for whatever Jesus tells us to do. We're willing to go all the way. But what happens is slowly, even accidentally, we end up in a place we never expected to be. The desire and fervor that we had at the beginning leads to danger that we didn't expect. You know, a few years ago, I was pondering this concept as I was pastoring a church in my hometown in Maryland, and it was a, a majorly religious area. We had 300 churches in under a 10-mile radius. Now, I know here in Mansfield, we're called the City of Churches, and uh, there's a mural about the City of Churches, a beautiful mural of the historic churches here in Mansfield. And there are quite a few churches, not as many as where I came from. One of the things that I began to see is that there was this stirring or this reality of religiosity that seemed to permeate the culture. And it led me kind of on a journey to find out, what does this look like? Why is this happening? What does this look like in my own life? And it led me to a book, this book called Accidental Pharisee. Now, this book is written by Larry Osborne. It's a fantastic book. And I would just tell you, if you go pick up this book, as every book does, except for the Bible, every book is like eating fish, right? When you eat fish, you got to spit the bones out sometimes. Every book that you read, so theologians in here, every book you read is going to have some bones you got to spit out. This book has some bones. By the way, I wrote a book, and I would tell you, be careful reading it. It has some bones in it. you got to spit them out, right? There's meat in it, but there's some bones. Every book except for the Bible has some bones. This book really challenged my thinking because it really went to the core of my own life because I don't know about you. I, I came to Christ. I grew up in a Christian home. I came to Christ at an early age. I had a godly mother who walked me through life. I went to church since I was born, maybe even at the day of my birth I was in church. I mean, I was in church all my life, and how easy it was to accidentally begin to move in a place that I never thought I could. And as I read this book, and as I began to study, I found God doing a work in the coronaries of my spiritual heart. Can I tell you, Crossroads, many of you, you came to Christ through Crossroads 20 years ago, or 18 years ago, or 15 years ago, and, and so now you're, you're, you're mature in the faith. You, you've known Christ for a long time. You've grown in life, and how easy it is to find yourself in a similar situation, to find yourself in what we're going to be calling an accidental Pharisee. Now, before I go any further, I want to assure you what I'm not doing is preaching to you a book. I want to encourage you, if you want to get this book, get this book. I'm not going to preach to you a book, but what this book did was led me on a study of what the Pharisees were all about. And so what I want to do is share with you a series that God birthed in me as a result of reading this book and then going back to the the book, the Bible, and, and showing me what it looks like to really live out this way of Christ. Because what I found are that Pharisees are not a mere tidbit of ancient history. The the Pharisees actually play an important role in the New Testament. They are one of the main characters of the interaction of Jesus Christ. And as we read about them, we find details about them that kind of connect with some of us. Let me just say this for a moment. Imagine if I started today and I went, we want to welcome all of you Pharisees in this room this morning. We want to welcome all you Pharisees at Lexington and Shelby and those of you online. 
How does that make you feel? If I were to say, welcome all the Pharisees, most of you would be offended by that. Right? When we use the word Pharisee, there is a connotation that we have with it. Right? When we think of Pharisee, we, th- we have images that conjure up in our minds of hypocritical, narrow-minded, pompous, puffed-up spiritual people. Right? When we think of Pharisees, we think of an insult. But in the first century, a Pharisee was actually considered a compliment. It was actually a compliment. When you would call somebody a Pharisee, it wasn't like, oh, them. It was, oh, wow. I mean, they were considered the greatest. They were the Navy SEALs of the spiritual faith in the first century. Now, let me describe these Pharisees. Pharisee was one of the four sects of Judaism. Judaism was the the religion of the Jews, those who kept the law. Uh, they were the, one of the four sects. There were Essens, who were scribes. There were Sadducees, who you can always remember were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's how you remember them. There were zealots. By the way, Peter, Simon Peter, was one of the zealots, uh, one of the disciples. The zealots wanted to overthrow Rome and believed that the kingdom would overthrow Rome. And there were the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were probably, of all the sects of Judaism, they probably excelled above them all because they had an oral tradition written in the Mishnah that, that kind of had this, this oral tradition that they built on top of the law of God. So they were reflectors of God's law to the, to the umph degree. They were, they were picture perfect when it came to keeping God's law. They excelled in everything that you and I would actually admire spiritually. We would admire them. Why? They were zealous for God. They were completely committed to their faith. They were theologically astute. They were masters of biblical text. They obeyed even the obscure commands in the Old Testament. By the way, they were defenders of God and truth. In fact, I don't know if you know this, some of our theology actually is built from the Pharisees' teaching. What, what do I mean? Well, the Pharisees actually taught the priesthood of all believers. They actually taught that every person plays a role as a priest. They actually taught that the temple wasn't just a physical building, it was actually people. They taught that. It's in their old traditions. They believe that, uh, that, that that people should gather in home groups, in small groups. You know, they had small groups. They were called uh, Havarats. And they would meet from house to house, learning and teaching the word and sharing a meal together. They did the precursors to small groups. Yes, the Pharisees would be considered the picture-perfect church member. They would be a pastor's ideal person. I mean, they kept the law to the ump degree. If anybody had the right to boast, it was these folks. Why? Because no one paid the price that they paid the price that no one else was willing to make. They paid the price in a very unique way to follow God strictly. If you had to pick up a group to be like, it would be a Pharisee. If you heard somebody say you're like a Pharisee, you would actually raise your head a little higher and go, that's right. Wow, I'm like the Pharisees. They were the Marvel characters of the first century. So, how does passion have a dark side? If the Pharisees were so righteous and good, what happened? I mean, how did they end up on the wrong side of Jesus? How did they become the ultimate villains in all the gospel stories? Can I believe the, I, I believe the answer to this question is of utmost importance. And I believe if we only have an image of the Pharisees as a spiritual loser and a perennial enemy of Jesus, 
I don't believe we'll ever be able to recognize the clear and present danger of becoming a Pharisee in our own lives. And so as we read these stories about the Pharisees, I think we do well to pay attention to the fact that these people were heroes of the first century. I want to take a look together at Luke chapter 5. Now before we dive in, this is the first interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees. In fact, right after this interaction will eventually lead to a private conversation uh, that we find in John chapter 3 with uh, uh, one of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So this is the first interaction with the Pharisees as a group, and then we find Nicodemus having a private conversation in John chapter 3. We're going to look here at Luke chapter 5. Jesus has been, has been teaching, he's been gathering his disciples, and then we pick up the story in verse 17. Take a look with me. It says, And one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with them to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, and they let down him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. By the way, the word tiles there is where we get our word ceramic, a karamos. And they let him down in the midst of Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them. By the way, perceived their thoughts, very interesting word, dialogizomai, and it literally is the word dialogue, where we get our word dialogue. He perceived their thoughts. He answered and said, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and he picked up what he had been laying on and he went home glorifying God and amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Here is Jesus who is teaching the people but Luke pauses the story and says, I want to show you not only what Jesus is teaching but what he's doing. This is important. The gospel writers want us to see not only the teachings of Jesus, but also the lifestyle of Jesus. It's not just about the theological perspective of Jesus, although that's very important. It's also about about the way Jesus lived, the way Jesus reflected the truth of the Father in life. This is what Luke focuses on. He wants us to see the actions of Jesus with people. Notice here, there's this story. It says, first of all, that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there with them. They were sitting in the midst. We're going to come back to that in a moment. And it says that all the villages were gathered around and there was the power of the Lord was with him to heal. All of a sudden, some men bring a paralyzed man to him. They try to bring a paralyzed man. I, I love the description here. It says they were seeking to bring him and lay him before Jesus. The word seeking there, literally to seek as to find. And then it says, but finding no way to bring him. The word there, uh, I love this, this, this Greek word because... It's where we get our word risk from. It's the word harisko. And it, it's the, the meaning literally means to risk everything in order to find. It means to seek as to seek every way you can to find a way to bring this man to Jesus. They were doing everything they could to bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus because they believed that Jesus could change his life. They believed that he could heal him. 
As Jesus was working and doing these miracles, they believed that he was the answer. And so they're doing everything they can to bring this man to Jesus. So much so that they climb on the rooftop. I want to talk about risk. They climb to the roof and they begin to take off the tiles to drop him in before Jesus. I want you to think about the effort they're taking to get this man before Christ, before Jesus. They're willing to do whatever it takes. They love him so much, they want him to come before Jesus. I love this. They're taking off the tile roofs. I look at this and I'm like, what were they thinking? Can you imagine a day if Jesus was in our presence, someone going up to the roof and beginning to rip apart whatever it is our roof is made of? I don't know what it's made of, tar and all this other thing. And they just start digging it out. And then they begin to drop in a bed someone. I, I, guess, I guess the guy's already paralyzed, so if they drop him, he's okay. I, I don't know. I mean, think about it. They're doing everything they can to get him to Jesus. Now, watch what happens here. Watch what happens. Jesus, in the beginning, doesn't heal him. Notice verse 20, and when he saw their faith, the friend's faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. The first thing that Jesus does is not go after the physical. He goes after the spiritual. See, sometimes in our lives, we're expecting God to answer the physical needs of our life, but what he wants to do deeply is the spiritual reality of our lives. He comes after the spiritual. This is why salvation is so important. This is why, listen, God may not always answer the prayer of healing in our lives. God may not always answer the prayer of suffering in our, 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 our lives, but what we can be assured is he will renew our faith. What we can be assured of is he will grow our faith, right? Because what God is doing is doing a spiritual, surgical, work on us to make us more like Christ, right? All of us here will face death. Eventually, there will be a prayer that will not be answered, right? I don't know about you, but I've stood beside the bedside of many people praying, God, would you heal them? I, I know you can. And guess what? There are many, many, many times, and for all of us, there will be a prayer that will not be answered because we will die. But in Christ, right, we know that there's eternal life in him. And so the spiritual life is where Jesus goes first. Notice what happens. The scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're, they're questioning. Who is this who speaks blasphemies, who can forgive sin but God alone? And Jesus saw their thoughts. Jesus understood their thoughts. He was able to hear the inward dialogue happening. Notice they didn't speak. He heard their thoughts. And so what does he do? He says, you know what? You don't believe that I can forgive sins? I'm going to prove it to you. Take up your bed and walk. Take up your bed and go home. He proves it with a physical picture. Now, I want to, I want to point some things out about the Pharisees here. Because our focus is specifically on the Pharisees in these stories. Number, number one is this. The Pharisees believe that they have superior authority. Pharisees believe that they have authority. I want to show you this. Take a look at verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. Let's pause there for a moment. You and I would read this and just merely skip over it. Okay, they were sitting there. But in the first century, whenever there was someone teaching, it was actually the opposite of the way we do things, right? What we do is a teacher stands and those listening sit. But in their day, in the first century, the teacher would actually sit and the others who were listening would actually stand. And there were reasons for that. I think maybe they were smarter than us because they kept people from taking naps during sermons and things like that. They actually did the opposite. The teacher would sit. The listeners would stand. 
Notice the Pharisees here are sitting, which tells you what? They believe they are the authority. They believe they are the ones that have authority to speak to these people. So here is Jesus, who must be sitting among them, or at least near them, and he's teaching them. And this is not the way it was supposed to be, because they were the ones in authority. Notice verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question. You ever have your kids ask you questions, and you tell them, because I said so. Anybody ever do that? I can't be the only one. Because I said so. At some point, and I have this deal with my boys, say, you can ask any question, I will answer it. But you know how it works, right? Because sometimes our kids are manipulators. And so they ask an honest question, you answer the honest question. I always give a response, I'm always willing to answer any question they have. Well, Dad, why are we doing this? Well, why are you making me do this? Well, here's why. But it's always the second question that gets me, right? Well, well, Dad, I don't think that's fair. That's when it comes out. Because I said so then. You don't like my, you don't like my answer in the first place, and because I said so is going to suffice right now. This is the image I get, right? Notice they began to question. I mean, here is Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven you. And they're like, he's committing blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins, which is the point, right? Jesus is proving himself to be God. And they begin to question. I want you to notice they believed they were authority, that they had the right to question God in the flesh. They had the right to question. In our world today, we live in a time where everybody believes they have authority. I mean, think about social media. Isn't it true that we actually believe that we are the authority on any topic? We can go to social media, we can give our opinion, we have become the authorities on every topic and no one can tell us otherwise. We have become the authority. And for many of us, that authority begins to play itself out in the way that we view others, in the way that we view the work of God in life, the way that we view other people's uh, journey with Christ. We begin to believe that we have authority on everything. Now, some people will say, no, 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 I'm just confident. Confidence can become a very dangerous form of authority. Here's the point. I want you, I want to, I want you to see how Jesus responds. Notice verse 24. But that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus responds and says, listen, I want to show you that I have authority. And what does he do? He makes his bed. This man heals him and says, take your bed and go home. Jesus proves he has authority. See, for many of us in our lives, we are believing God or wanting to believe a God about physical authority. And what Jesus is trying to show us is that he needs and should have the spiritual authority. Um, I think in my own life, what I have found sometimes as I've journeyed with Christ is that the longer I've been a Christian, the more authority I think I have to live life. But instead, it's the longer I've been a Christian, the more authority I should believe that he has in my life. See the difference? is a lot of people live their lives and say, the longer I'm a Christian, the more authority I believe I have. Like I understand how God works, and I understand what the Word says, and I understand how prayer works, and I understand how this works. But instead, what should happen is not more authority in who I am or more confidence in who I am. What happens is, as a Christian, the longer I'm a Christian, the more authority and confidence I see that Christ has, that I have in Him, that He has the authority in my life. And that what my life is, the longer I live out my faith, is my life is a surrendered position to say, Christ, you have all authority. But in Pharisees, it doesn't happen that way. 
In Pharisees, the longer we live life, the more we think we have authority over everything. That we think we have authority over what's happening and we have opinions about it and ideas about it. Instead of saying, God, the longer I've I've walked with you, the more I realize you have authority. You are the one I surrender to. Oh, you are the one that matters above all. By the way, notice the result. Verse 26, an amazement seized them all. I love that. The word there is ecstasis. It's where we get our word ecstatic. They were overwhelmed. The, the word literally means mind blown. Their mind was blown over what they saw. Now, I want to follow the next section here. Notice, the same day. This is all happening on the same day. So the Pharisees believe they have authority. Jesus says, no, I have authority. Verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Now, in their day, taxes were assembled for three things. For people that were traveling. There were taxes. There were taxes on goods bought and sold. And there were taxes on land. So here is Levi who's taking taxes from people, journeying from one town to the next. And so as people were coming in, there was Levi, who is Matthew. Uh, By the way, very common in the biblical world to have two first names. Simon Peter, John Mark. Matthew, Levi. Many of them had two, what we would call first names. So here is Levi, who was Matthew, the gospel writer, sitting at the tax booth, and he's collecting taxes. And he says to him, Jesus says to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Notice here, Jesus calls Levi, who is Matthew, and he says, hey, follow me. And and we're told that he leaves everything. Now I want you to think about this. In chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 5, he calls a group of fishermen. Fishermen leave everything, but they can always come back to fishing. In fact, after Jesus ascends into heaven, or uh, resurrects, uh, it says that he finds them out on the Sea of Tiberias fishing. Why? They return to what they knew to do. But for a tax collector, they were looked at as dishonest, irreputable people. Uh, tax collectors were looked at as, as they were renowned for dishonesty. Why? Because the only way they made money was by taking the standard of the tax and raising it. So it would be like going through a toll booth. You go through the toll booth and... I don't know why it is whenever I go through a toll booth, I say, hey, thank you so much. I don't know why I'm thanking them for paying them. I just thought about that. But you go through a toll booth, and what happens? They take your toll for the road. So you're entering a city in the first century, they take a toll. They take, take a price. What the tax collector does is say, hey, today, that price is going to be X amount more. Why? Because you're paying for the tax collector to be there. So the tax collector made money on the commission he could raise from people that would pay it. And so he would say, you, you owe this. And he had authority. He, he was usually, this Matthew, a Jew who worked for the Romans. They were hated. They were hated. They were despised. They were, they were, they were traitors to the Jewish people. And here is Levi, Matthew, who leaves, and it says he, he leaves everything. He could never go back to his job. He could never go back to what he had. They would never allow it to happen. Here he is. And notice where it leads. I love this because it shows us that Jesus did more than just preach repentance. Jesus also had relationship. He had meals with sinners. Yes, he came to preach the message of repentance 
faith in him, that he was God, but it was also that he had relationships, which, which should encourage us today that the, the goal is not just to rescue us, the goal is to have a relationship with us. Here is Jesus, and he has a relationship here with Levi. He's eating with them. In fact, I love the description of the meal. It's, it's the word megas doxa. It means it's a great feast. It's a great glorifying feast is the word there. Certainly, Levi was a rich man to be able to throw this party. But there are the Pharisees, and notice what it says, verse thirty. They are grumbling. Grumbling is a pretty fun word. It's the word um, gaguzo. Why it's a fun word is it's actually onomatopoeic, um, onomatopoeia, which is where a word sounds like it is, right? So think about, just say the word gaguzo four or five times. Gagugo, gaguzo, gaguzo, gaguzo. What does it sound like? Grumbling, 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 grumbling. It sounds like grumbling, doesn't it? It sounds exactly the way it's meant. It is grumbling. They're grumbling to each other. They're, they're like, how can this be? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I want you to notice something. This is number two. Pharisees live by comparison. Pharisees live by comparison. How can you eat with them? How can you drink with them? How can you associate with them? How can you care about them? By the way, do you know the word Pharisee actually means separated? The reason they were called Pharisees is because they were separated by the law. They were separated to follow the law. But what happened as Jesus confronted them is they were separated from people. They were separated from real life. They were separated from how people lived. Can I say for you and I how easy it is for us to begin to live in the trap of comparison? Right? We begin our faith by not caring about anybody else. We begin our faith by only focusing on the Lord. But what happens over time, we begin to see our lives cleaned up. And yet we're not perfect, but we start to pursue new spiritual disciplines. And as we press forward, what's happened? It's inevitable that you and I begin to notice that there are some people that lag behind. Right As we press forward spiritually, we begin to look back in the line and say, why aren't they living the way I am? Why aren't they where I'm at? It reminds me of elementary school. I went to the inner city public elementary school. I don't know why they did everything with whistles. And I remember when it was time to go to the bathroom, they would blow a whistle and you would line up at the door of the classroom. When it's time to go to recess, you would, they would blow the whistle and you would, line to get in, right? they, you would get in line to go to recess. Right, they would blow this whistle. What happened? I don't know if it was true in your school, but whenever they would blow that whistle, there was a race from every kid in that room, especially boys, to see who could get in the front of the line. And we would get up there and we'd... But why? We wanted to be in the front of the line because we were the line leader. Now, if you remember, anybody else did that, you would try to be the line leader. And, and this is what would happen every time. I remember as a kid, I would get in the front of the line and the first thing i do, bunch of losers, <laughs> like you couldn't make it to the front, you're not fast enough. I get to be the line leader, and when I walk that line to the bathroom, five steps, that's all it was, there was a pride, why, I was the line leader. This is exactly the Pharisees. This is exactly, the, right, all of a sudden, I'm growing in my faith, I'm living out disciplines, I'm learning about the Lord, but what happens, how easy it is to turn and say, well, what about those people? I mean, where are they at in their faith? Why are they lagging behind? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't care for one another, but often the feeling we have about other people is not based upon a care to see them come forward. It's based upon the comparison trap that says they're not where they need to be. In the meantime, we don't do anything to help them get there. Compar comparison 
eventually leads to judgment. Comparison builds a bridge to becoming a judgmental person where I'm judging everybody else, and in the meantime, my heart is beginning to fade to a place I never should want it to go. Let me ask you, do you have a deepening sense of frustration with those who aren't keeping up with your spiritual growth? Is there a frustration that you feel? And by the way, we should feel some of that, but what are we doing about it? That's the question. For the Pharisees, all they did was say, how can you eat with them? And Jesus confronts them. Notice Jesus. Jesus comes and says, I have not come to compare, but to change. Notice Jesus' response. It says, he answered, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I want you to see the parallel. He says, those who are well are righteous. Those who are sick are sinners. I have come to rescue the sinners. The righteous don't need rescued. Right? No one here this week is going to call up their doctor and say, I just want you to know I'm feeling great today. No one here is going to call up the hospitals and say, hey, ER, I just want you to know I got no issues to this week. We, we don't call the doctor when we're not sick. No, we only call the doctor when we are sick. This is the picture. Jesus says, listen, Pharisees, you should be well. You should never complain. Why? Because you should know that I'm coming for, I'm coming for the sick. I'm coming for the one that needs it. You should be celebrating this. Jesus says, I have come not to compare, but to change. Can I tell you, one of the big faults of Pharisees in the Christian world today is that we think that unbelievers should act like believers. Do you know why families are falling apart? Do you know why abortion is still rampant, although the numbers are still coming down, but there's other reasons why I believe that's happening? Do, do you know why th there's confusion about identity when it comes to our, our gender? It's because people don't have Jesus. Like at the core, the issue is not that they need to get it right. The issue is they don't know any better. They don't know any better. And for many of us as Christians, if we grow into Pharisees, we begin to point the finger and say, well, how could they not vote this way? And how could they not see it this way? And how could they not get it right? You know why they don't get it right? Because they don't have Jesus. And so why would we act as if unbelievers should act like believers? No, we should expect them to be pagan and heathen. And if you're an unbeliever in here, I mean that lovingly. Because there is an answer in Jesus Christ who loves you and came to die for you. He came to rescue the sick. And we've all been sick. All of us fall short of the glory of God. This is exactly the need. And for we who know Christ, we've got to be careful of becoming a Pharisee that forget, forgets that there are sinners and their greatest need is not political reform. Their greatest need is not social reform. Their greatest need is not physical reform. Their greatest need is spiritual awakening. Jesus Christ. I, I want to continue here. Verse 33, it says, and then they said to him, the disciples of John fast often. Here are the Pharisees talking. They said, the disciples of John, they're fasting often, and they offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Jesus here being absolutely brilliant because there was a law that the Pharisees had that when, a, when there was a wedding, you weren't allowed to fast during the wedding. It was, it, you were supposed to feast during the wedding, so there was a law given. Now watch, and Jesus said to them, can you make a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom, he's talking about himself, is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And he told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts an old, on an old garment. You don't patch an old garment is what he's saying. Why? It's going to tear. It'll tear the new garment, and the piece from the new will not match the old. Verse 37, and no one, well, I should pause here, unless you're in our generation now where having holes in your clothing is cool. And having patches that don't match is cool, right? But in their day, it would be looked at as, you don't do that. 
Verse 37, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins, and wineskins were made out of stretched material from animals, right? You know this, once they are used over and over again, they dry, and when they dry, they don't stretch anymore. So, so you don't put new wine, which is going to stretch, it's going to expand into old wineskins. Why? Because old wineskins can't expand. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. The old is good, and he's making a bit of sarcastic point to the Pharisees. See, you think the old is good, but you can't live that way. Here's the point. Pharisees turn helpful spiritual tools into rigid religious rules. Pharisees, and we're going to unpack all of these points over the next few weeks in greater detail, but Pharisees turn spiritual tools into rigid religious rules. They take these laws of God, the good things of God, and manipulate them to be opinions. They, they add opinions on top of what God commands. They take God's commands and they say, now you've got to do this and you've got to do that and you've got to do this. By the way, they had a whole law about fasting. Uh, fasting only happened for the Jews a couple days throughout the year. One of them was called the Day of Atonement, which we just celebrated uh, last week, this Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The rabbis actually made a decree that they weren't even allowed to eat for that entire week. They wouldn't eat, drink, bathe, anoint themselves, wear sandals, or have relations with their spouse on that week, during these weeks. And so they, they expanded the rule, and now they expected everybody else to follow the rule that was only their opinion. They added opinion on top of rules. They were not hypocritical. They were hypercritical. They weren't hypocritical. They were hypercritical. They take out the measuring rod and began to measure people to say, do you measure up to what we believe God is calling you to do? And I want you to notice Jesus' response. Jesus responds and says, I offer something new. I offer something new. See, Pharisees, you patch problems, but Jesus makes people whole. This is exactly what Paul writes in Romans chapter, uh, Romans chapter 6. He says that we might walk in newness of life, that we are a new creation, 1 Corinthians, that we live differently. Jesus says, I've come for the new. I've come to make new. I've come to change life. I didn't just come to tell people they need patched. I didn't come just to tell people that they need to keep opinions of the law. By the way, the law is perfect in the Old Testament. It's meant to show us that we need Jesus. It is the mirror by which we look to say, I can't do this, and so I grab onto the thing that I can, which is trust in the one who fulfilled the law, Jesus Christ. Here, Jesus says, I came to make things new. Now, I want you to notice here the progression of the Pharisees as we end. And then I'm going to make very three very simple points to bring this kind of back home. I, I want you to notice the progression there's a man made spiritually well, but they were questioning it. They were questioning physically how, how Jesus could spiritually forgive someone. They, they saw a man who was unworthy of following God, Levi, a tax collector, and Jesus confronts him and says, no, 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 the sick is who I call, right? The sick are who I came for. And now Jesus says, I want you to live this new life. Notice the progression. A man who couldn't help himself, who has his sins forgiven, a man who is called by God into a new relationship as, a, as a, someone who's a tax collector, and Jesus has a relationship, and then Jesus says, it's new. I want you to notice there's a progression of the Christian life. I cannot save myself. I am a 
paralytic when it comes to my sinfulness. I cannot move. I cannot go. I cannot solve. I cannot do. What happens? Jesus calls us into a relationship with himself by faith, trust in me, and all of a sudden what happens? Then he makes us new. See the progression? What Jesus just did in one day was share the gospel through three scenarios. You can't save yourself. You need to be brought down by the roof. I'm going to forgive your sins, and now I'm going to have a relationship. I'm going to call you into this relationship. And then the third part of this is I'm going to make you new. I'm going to work in your life to make you new. I'm going to, I'm going to do this work, and until we enter into eternity, he has continued to make that work of making us new, pulling out the pieces that need to be pulled out, making things new in our lives continually. This is the picture of this. This is the image of the gospel. Now, I want you to notice the Pharisees. The Pharisees. Verse 21. They begin to question. Verse 30, they begin to grumble. Verse 33, notice they're critiquing Jesus. They're saying, why do you let your disciples eat when they should be fasting? Notice they go from thinking, overthinking it, criticizing, grumbling, and now they're critiquing. Now I want you to see this. And again, we're going to look at this over the next few weeks. How did this happen? How do they go from God's most zealous defenders to Jesus' arch enemies? Can I tell you, for you and I, it can happen to us even accidentally. It's like going to Waffle House. You never intend to go there, you just happen to get there. No one goes to Waffle House intentionally. You just find nothing else around and say, let's just go there. That's exactly what happens. Slowly we can move. And folks, can I tell you? The people that need this series the most are the ones that will not think they need the series the most. Those of us who need to hear the words of Jesus in this moment will be the ones that think everybody else needs to hear these words. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be unpacking this. I want to make three quick observations that are going to set up where we're going to go over the next few weeks. These are three dangers that you and I have of sliding into pharisaical living even accidentally. Number one is this. The longer you're a Christian, the greater the danger of moving away from the mission. One of the dangers is that the longer I'm a Christian, the slow move, the slow drift that I can begin to have away from the mission of Jesus Christ. How easy it is for us to begin to critique, to begin to grumble, to begin to question, instead of saying, God, how are you at work? How is this mission of your gospel going forth into the world? And slowly what can happen is we can, the longer we're a Christian, there's a danger that we begin to drift away from the fervor and excitement that we felt about everybody needing to know this message. We can begin to slowly move away from the mission. We can begin to forget where we've come from. Secondly, the more we focus on measuring the spiritual progression of others, the less likely we are to see how God is calling us to help him. See, for many of us, we're so focused on the spiritual progression of other people, the spiritual progression, why? Because when we have spiritual progression, when we see the spiritual progression of others, we begin to feel better about ourselves, don't we? Well, I'm not like them. God has got to be happy with my journey. I mean, I'm a little farther along than some of these folks. By the way, isn't it true in life? You can always find somebody farther along than you and somebody's always behind you. Always. It's like sports teams. You always find a better athlete. You always find this, right? This happens in life. 
for you and I, we can begin to so focus on other people. This is the mistake, by the way, that they made. This is the mistake the Pharisees made. They became, became God's watchdog, and they missed the call of God on their own lives. Think about it. They sat here and never once said to Jesus, can we help you? They never once said to Jesus, hey, hey, let me get the roof for you. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me help welcome in Levi. Let me help uh, break down the walls here as your, your, your disciples are not fasting. Let's have a meal with them and talk about this. Never once did they see right in front of them where opportunity. Why? Because they were too focused on measuring spiritual progression. See, you know what I've learned in my spiritual life, and I haven't figured all this out, but what I've learned is I don't serve other people by focusing on other people. I serve other people by focusing on God. The more my eyes are on the Lord, I've seen this recently. I've had the privilege, and listen, this is not, this is not up here going like, look at me. I've had the privilege recently to share the gospel with more people than, I mean, it's just been amazing. I've been in weird places, and God has just opened a door to talk about him. I mean, just the other day, I, I'm, I'm at a store, and someone goes, hey, are, are you a pastor? Which I always hesitate to answer, because I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't know what their thoughts are of a, being a pastor. And so I hesitantly said, yeah, I might be. No, I did. I said yes. <laughs> and they just go, and they, you know what? I'm sitting there in a store, and they're telling me about how years ago they, they attempted suicide, and they read through the Bible, and they just, they're thinking about helping. I invited them to church. I talked with them right there in the aisle. I shared about Jesus with them. I, I literally shared with them, hey, do you know this is the whole reason God came to rescue you, to, to, to save you. He died on that cross for your sins. He walked out of the grave so that you could have salvation. I, I've seen opportunities. You know what happens? It's not by focusing on the people and saying, I need to, who do I need to help? God, who is it? It's by focusing on the Lord and saying, God, keep my heart in tune to those moments right in front of me. God, help me to see what you see. See, for Pharisees, we can so be measuring the spiritual progression of others that we're missing God's calling right now to help those in need. And then lastly, the cleaner the hands or clean hands can lead to pointing fingers. I see so many of us, not just crossroads, but Christians, that are sitting on the sidelines. Jesus here got his hands dirty. He touched people. He got in the mess of life. He ate with sinners. And I see so many Christians that are just about cleaning their hands. When you have clean hands, what happens next is you begin to point fingers. Well, it's them, it's them, it's them. Instead of getting in the game and saying, no, 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 I, I, I want my hands to be, to be dirty. I, I want to get in. I want the mess. By the way, isn't it true we're called the salt of the earth? You know what salt's supposed to do? Salt is supposed to be taken out of the box and poured on the raw meat. Right? Salt has to be used. And when salt is used, it gets messy. It doesn't stay in a box. It doesn't stay in the cupboard. you got to get it out. And that's the image, right? Is you and I are the salt of the earth. And that means our hands got to get messy. we got to be willing to get in the mess of life with people. See, for the Pharisees, they were more concerned about thinning the herd than expanding the kingdom. For the Pharisees, they were more concerned about raising the bar than helping people climb over the bar. See, they were more concerned about external life than they were about spiritual need. And how easy is it for us to say, well, I've got clean hands, it's all their problem. Instead of getting our hands dirty to share the gospel with people and encourage the other believers to walk in Christ. We've got to get our hands dirty. Slowly, if we don't, we will also become the thing that holds back the work of God in people's lives. We will become the Pharisee, accidentally, but we will become the Pharisees. 
I, I want to ask you, would you just ask God to reveal in your heart where you're at with him, where you're at with this? Would you just ask God to reveal to you, are you an accidental Pharisee? I had a friend of mine, um, I had the privilege of speaking at a, a young adult rally two, two years in a row down in Texas. And I met a man there who led the organization. And uh, he had a heart issues and ended up getting a heart transplant at Baylor University. And uh, I remember kind of just praying for him, keeping track of him. And he tells a story about after he had the heart transplant, he went back into Baylor University Hospital. And, and his doctor pulled out his old heart and said, hey, you want to see it? And he took the heart and held it in his hands, his old heart. As he looked at it, he said, I can't believe that this little thing caused me so much trouble. I want to ask you, here we are in a city of churches, plenty of room for Christianity. Could it be that some of us have accidentally become Pharisees? Could, could maybe you allow God to say, let me show you your heart. Let me show you where you're at in this. Let me show you how you're reflecting me. Could it be that God is saying, you need to get your hands in the mess. Quit sitting on the sidelines. Get involved. Serve somebody. Share the gospel with somebody. Invite somebody. Don't just point a finger. Get involved. Maybe God's calling you to that. Would you stand with me as we pray? As always, if you're here without Christ, you can know him. We, we'd love to invite you to the next steps. He, he can save your life, transform your life, make you new. If you know Christ and are struggling, we'd love to pray with you. Um, God, I want to thank you for your word. Lord, I, I need this reminder. So often, I can easily become a Pharisee. God, I've known you for many years. I've, I've learned your word. I, I've had the privilege of growing up in, in the faith. God, how easy it is to get my focus off of the main thing. How easy it is to get my focus on petty things. How easy it is to point fingers and make judgment calls and have opinions and add rules to, to things that should be tools. And God, how easy it is for me uh, to begin to question instead of serving. So God, do that work in our hearts. Show us the weak places. Renew a right spirit in us toward your gospel, toward your calling, toward the people around us. All for your name and glory, Jesus Christ. We pray. Do that work. Do the surgical work in our hearts that only you can do, great physician. It's in your name.